I'm Laura from Catalyst Inc Connect. Welcome to another episode of Succeed in Business, Springboard, Northern Ireland's most powerful personalised accelerator programme. Shares everything you need to know and didn't know you didn't know. Everything you need to know to establish, grow and scale your business successfully. Springboard, accelerating innovation through experience. Today's episode recorded at Arthur Cox in Belfast is titled Do Startups Really Need Lawyers? And we are with John and Lindsay Mallon, partner in the corporate and commercial group. Lindsay, you're very welcome. And thanks for giving us some time to talk today about, I think, a really key subject for early stage and startup companies. What you think are the key elements that none of our entrepreneurs, early stage or startup companies should pass by? The question we always get asked is, um, you know, do we really need to be worried about this, and particularly tech companies, because at the outset, the focus is usually on product development, and um, these companies tend to um, set their milestones in terms of are they, are they hitting their um, development KPIs and don't look at the wider stuff. It's really important that you have your legal and your governance procedures in place from day one even at the outset when you're going along and looking to attract investment, they will look at how you manage your board and manage your company in terms of how they feel you'll be able to manage their money and generate a return or profit or generate a successful exit for them. Um, If you don't have your legals and your governance procedures in place at the outset, we have seen numerous examples of that leading to problems down the line. So, for example... What happens at the outset, companies tend not to have a lot of money, so they will fire their shares out around friends and colleagues and employees and people who have done a favour for them in in getting the product to where it needs to be. Think then if you're going to try and raise finance or you're going for an investment round, some lawyer somewhere will be asked to give a legal opinion um, or to say that the shares have been properly allotted. If there's no paperwork in place or nothing to show that, the lawyer can't give their opinion and all of a sudden your deal may fall through because the investor has no confidence that what's being put in front of them is actually the position. Another key area we see that often gets overlooked in the legals at the outset is around IP assignments. And you know, I would say if there was one thing that you look at at the outset, it's getting anyone that's working on your product or involved with your company, be that your mates, consultants, somebody you engage signed up to an IP assignment and if you can't afford to go out and get one legally drafted you know beg borrow or steal something off somebody that you can at least use Um, and the reason for that is that we have seen a few substantial exits in terms of value being held up um, by disgruntled former employees who will come along at the last minute and claim that they still own part of the IP um, or are responsible for some element of it. Um, and we'll hold all the parties to ransom. Great. So if I was to summarise that, I guess it's start as you mean to go on. That's right. And there's real value in corporate governance, not just in the fact that it's good business practice and it will help you along the way, but it, it really adds real value in terms of pounds or dollars to your company because you have that backup for the investors or potential investors when you go to talk to them. That's right. Um, it also shows them that you're credible. So there's nothing that will give an investor and their legal team more confidence than saying that you have all of your paperwork in place. 
Um, I mean, we, and again, we've had examples acting for investors where they have thought that they were investing in a company only to go along and find that the company didn't actually exist. Um, you know, it's even understanding um, those intricacies, you know, going along to company's house, actually getting your company set up, um, getting the name secured, keeping your filings up to date. Um, that sends out a message, not, not only to investors, but also to your potential customers as well and, and anyone that you're thinking of dealing with down the line, that you know what you're at, you're serious and that you do mean business. There's two little key points there, and I think you mentioned one of them in, in your previous comment as well. One is, you mentioned board meetings. So yes. when should the directors have board meetings? When should they start that? And secondly, about the other question that we get is, well, when should I incorporate? When should I create a limited company? Taking the second question first, if that makes sense. Certainly in order to ring fence and protect your ideas. Um, if you are serious about going forward, generating revenue, um, we would say incorporate at the outset and get yourself set up um, in a proper corporate structure. Um, that's not an expensive process. A lot of it now can be done online. But it is very worthwhile doing, again, for the reasons I have said. There is no investor or fund or customer that is going to want to deal with a group of individuals unless they're coming in at the outset and, and you're going to go in and work for them. But they will want to see that everything has been set up properly and know who they're dealing with. If you think of everything that goes with a limited company status, so in terms of your filings, um, making your information public, they know that that has to adhere to the standards set out in Companies Act if it's to appear on Companies Registry. Um, and they take confidence from that. And anyone they have in their team looking at your company or considering whether they work with you or put money into, you can take confidence from that as well. And um, The second question then around board meetings and how soon should you start? We would actually recommend at the outset and in the first couple of years, you're having your board meetings monthly. They're really there because they provide the direction, if you like, by which the company will be ruled and the controls that need to be put in place as well. And it's a really good practice to get into. As your company becomes more sophisticated, the frequency of those meetings will decrease, particularly if you do have a couple or even a number of individuals all working in different strands of the product or in different areas of the business at the same time, just to get together on a monthly meeting and get into the practice of Right, where do we sit financially? Because as I've said, a lot of the focus can be on the actual product development. Um, what are we doing in terms of sales pipeline? What are we looking at? Are we chatting to investors? Or where are we raising funds from? And, and always keep an eye on what is our end goal here? And are we moving towards that? Just dwelling on the, on the board meetings a little bit, I think one of the areas of, I would say, a lack of understanding when we talk to certainly the new entrepreneurs that have just set up a company, is this whole getting their head around the difference between a shareholder and the company and a director because sometimes they're all three. You know, yes. There might be two founders and they're both 50% between them and they're now both directors. That's a very, very uh, common um, question, particularly if you think in, in Northern Ireland and a lot of our largest companies here are set up in that manner and that you have um, you know, owner-directors um, and the boundaries can become blurred. Um, which is why it is critical to have good governance procedures in place and also then, for example, to have non-executives on your board, which is something we can come on to. Shareholder, you're there in your capacity as owner of the company um, and really then the, the board of directors are there um, to give the company guidance and direction um, and to adhere to their duties under the Companies Act and to keep the interests of all stakeholders in mind. So they, they are two very distinct roles 
Um, obviously, directors are bound quite strictly by the rules set out in companies' legislation in terms of what they can and can't do. Really, they are there to deliver um, for the shareholders, if you like, um, in their capacity as owners of the business. If you compare that then to, for example, your senior managers in the business who will be there in an executive role with a distinct function, um, so you might be responsible for sales, for product development, for finance. You'll have your neat job description and you'll be expected to deliver that in accordance with the service levels in your contract. You know, that, that, that's another level entirely again. And, and you do find that you will have, um, particularly in tech companies, one individual who will maybe be in charge of sales is also a shareholder and is also sitting on the board. Mm-hmm. And it can be quite artificial, but you do have to wear your different hats because you don't want to find yourself falling foul of of any of the duties set out in the Companies Act. So you've got to be, in other words, a little bit schizophrenic. (laughs) I suppose you could put it that way, yeah. yeah. As a shareholder, you're you're sort of, well, you know, how do I uh, get the maximum value from my shares? If you then go into the boardroom, you now become the director, and now you're looking at, well, how do I do the best for the company? Which ultimately will be good for the shareholders, but it's a different perspective of looking at things. And, and absolutely and obviously one of the you know the key duties as a director is to avoid conflicts of interest um, and if you think if you're sitting there as a director but also as a shareholder. Big conflict of interest. Absolutely you know it, it's something that you have to be very mindful of and, and that's why board minutes are important I mean very rarely gets to that stage and hopefully it won't for anybody listening to the podcast um you know but if, if you ever did get to a situation and it does happen um where your company was being wound up or it failed at the first hurdle and you were ready to go again anyone was coming in and looking at how the company was run having board meetings and minutes and a record of exactly how and why decisions were taken is a really good indicator that everything was above board where you tend to see directors being disqualified is where there's a real lack of corporate governance and they don't have those records and it's not clear what decision was taken in a capacity as a director as opposed to I'm making this decision because it's the best thing for me to do as a shareholder and owner of the company. When you look back, things happen. Market, market conditions change mm-hmm. uh, and therefore it's, it's not a bad thing when you decide that actually it's better for everybody that we wrap up the company now and that's good decision making. Absolutely and um, I think I've, I've mentioned this previous seminars I've delivered for Catalyst you know that there's even an international conference that celebrates the failure of early stage tech companies um, because it's par for the course it needs to happen sometimes to to get to where you need to get to and yes you have to recognize that there does come that point that there that is the best decision is to wrap it up and move on um, and nobody will uh, nail you on that, provided that everything is done properly and, and you have followed all the correct procedures and complied with your duties. So you did mention, which I think is a, is a quite an important uh, subject, is non-executive directors. First of all, how would you describe a non-exec director and then what are their responsibilities and what key role do they play in the company and the board? A non-executive director typically is someone who's not carrying out a, an executive function with the company. Um, so if, if you think of a traditional company, your finance director will be engaged by the company and will be looking after finance. Your sales director, we've talked about, will be in charge of sales. Um, a non-executive director isn't engaged 
on a service or employment contract by the company. So their role purely is to come along as a board member. That being said, it doesn't mean that they're any less valuable. In, in fact, it's the opposite. A very good non-executive director can really enhance and add value to a board. It, it's critical, I think, that you get the right non-executive director. Um, I wouldn't recommend that you take one on just to tick a box for the sake of taking them on. It's really, really important, and, and we say this to a lot of the startups we act for, that you get the right person, you know, and don't be afraid to carry out your due diligence on that person and ask around. Um, sometimes startups feel very flattered um, when somebody offers to act as a non-executive director um, and they feel that they can't be picky or choosy. But it's key um, that it's someone you can get on with that will bring value to the board table You know, and, and ultimately has experience in taking a startup company from inception through to exit or whatever it is you, you want your company to achieve. And I think this is an, another area of potential misunderstanding. If you take the example of, of two entrepreneurs starting a company and they're 50% shareholders each and they're now having a board meeting where there's a, a non-exec director or a couple of non-exec directors on the board, at that point it doesn't matter if they own 100% of the shares between them. This is a, a director's meeting and each director is exactly the same vote. Absolutely. They have the same standing at board level. You know, un- Unless there's something within the Articles of Association that provides your shareholder directors have a veto over decisions, but the, the non-executive directors are bound by exactly the same duties under the Companies Act and, and they have a right to have their voice heard at the, the meeting as well. And actually in that situation, it can be very useful to have impartial third parties there who don't have a vested interest in terms of shares shareholdings and and I do get asked this quite a bit you know should a non-executive director be a shareholder I actually think you know my preference would be no because then they don't have a vested interest and you know that they are looking at things objectively and you're getting an impartial opinion hopefully on any issues that are causing a block you know I would absolutely agree and I think it's very valuable to have an independent director who are paid something for over the year for doing that job but they're not swayed by having a shareholding as well. Absolutely. Next important topic, I guess, IP, and you touched on it before, and the ownership of that. And from an investment perspective, it's important that that IP is owned by the company and not the, the original founder. Absolutely. You will be amazed how tied up in knots investors and funders will become over IP. As I said, I mean, I have sat in a completion meeting um, where the deal has has been held up um, simply because it, it transpired very late on that an assignment at the very outset um, might not have been put in place. There is an assumption that anyone working with a startup or helping out, it's all very well-meaning and there's an understanding they know that this IP will belong to us and they don't have a claim in it. I don't think anyone can ever make that assumption. Um, I can't stress the importance of making sure that the IP is tied up and that there are formal legally binding assignments in place. And those assignments themselves even have to take a certain form. You know, it's not enough. We've been asked in the past, oh, but I have an email from such and such telling me that, you know, no, they don't care about this. They're happy for us to have it. It's persuasive, but legally it's not actually enough to transfer the IP. I think common misconception in the past as well has been that everything employees and consultants create, um, if they're creating it for a company, um, it will belong to the company and again you know, certainly with employees that's a presumption but there are exceptions to that so it's not always the case and, and likewise with consultants the position is even slightly more lax. If you do nothing else in terms of governance I would say the first thing is make sure that you have all of your IP tidied up 
and all of the proper assignments in place. If you look at the directors and the employees um, and you look at doing business with uh, outside of the company, selling and buying, as a small company sometimes there's a reluctance to put proper contracts in place. If there's only three of us, do we really need employment contracts for example? On our first piece of business, do we really need a, you know, an invoice and, and the proper contractual terms and conditions? What are your views around that? You do absolutely. Um, as I said, right, right from the outset. You know, particularly with IP, very easy to as you proceed on the basis that you've just described, and be deemed then to have waived all your rights in that IP. Once it's out there, it's in the public domain. Um, so all those years of hard work and slaving in terms of getting it to where it is have just all been lost. People will respect you, I think, and expect you to ask for something formal to be put in place. Of course, people may try it on, you know, and, and see what they can get away with, or you can trust us or we'll do it on a handshake. And I think our experience as culture in Northern Ireland, we tend to be happy to do that. If you're doing business in the States, for example, people will not do anything without having it formally documented in writing. Um, and, and that's actually a very good habit and practice to be in. And on top of the IP assignments, what we also recommend are NDAs. So make sure, I mean, very simple form NDA. They're easy to come across, but just anyone you're dealing with, including your own employees and directors, get them all to sign up to it. So on the employment contract, you can very easily you can, add you that can build it in. Yeah. Okay. Talking about NDAs, they're good, but sometimes they can be very restricting in a way. And again, I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand when and when not to use an NDA. Mm -hmm. So when you're going out to sell a product mm -hmm. to somebody, yes. you can't expect all of your potential customers to sign an NDA. No. So when is a good time to use it, do you think? And, and when should you not? Um, again, what we would always say to clients is you have to be a bit smart about this. Um, you know, you can't go out and sell the whole shop and tell them everything. You obviously need to give them a bit of a teaser or, or enough to get them interested in your product. But if you get to the stage where you feel that you know, there and maybe it might be for regulatory reasons or compliance reasons, and um, that they need to know know or understand more how your product is made, um, you know, or how that technology works, um, or any legislative issues that may arise. At that stage where you're getting into explaining it in more detail or you're giving away the secret sauce or Formula X, don't do anything further without having the NDA in place. So could I would I be writing saying then it's horses for courses, so it really depends on the product you're selling and the type of sale that you're making. So if we're selling a widget, then you don't need to be giving away your secret sauce. So you're really selling on, the, on what this does and the mm -hmm. outcomes of what it does for you and the added value. You don't really need an NDA. If you're going into some sort of licensing agreement, for example, with a piece of software where somebody might have to know some of the code to implement it, then you probably want, do want to look at an NDA. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So last little bit, what are the, the, the key pieces of paperwork that entrepreneurs need to be aware of that they need to uh, complete? Um, I think as I've mentioned, so first off setting your company up and then your annual filings with Companies House, I mean that sounds cumbersome, it, it's not. Um, it can all be done online and managed and it's actually very easy to do. So there's actually not that much there that you're expected to file. What you will have to do then are any changes in your directors and again any issues of shares or movement in your share capital. By law you'll have to write up in your statutory registers. A lot of startups just don't bother or we get asked what on earth are they. These are the registers that set out who the shareholders or owners of the company are, any movements in those shares, issues of share certificates and any new allotments and they're the first thing that any acquirer or investor or funder will ask to see. I think with a lot of startups it tends to be you know 
there's a box and all the receipts just get thrown into the middle of it. Um, you know, at the stage you do become serious about an investor coming in or, or raising finance, they will expect to see a bit more financial control around that. So when an investor is looking to invest and they're doing their due diligence and, and they've got all of this material, they're investing in the people just as much as they are in the potential for the market and the product. And this really demonstrates that the people know what they're doing. That's a really good point. And also I remember um, a very successful in investor that we act for here once said something to me which has stuck with me and it's very true. He said, you know, I'm not sitting with the founders or the guys every day, so I don't see how they work or what they're doing on a daily basis. He said, I'm only seeing them once a month or once every two months running their board meetings. And he says, so that's really how I'm judging whether they're doing a good job or not. And I actually thought that's a, that's a really, really good point. To wrap up then, I think it's worth saying that from a, an early stage startup company viewpoint, having good corporate governance from the outset is actually adds real value even in pounds and dollar terms to what you're doing don't see it as a burden see it as a mechanism for supporting what you're doing absolutely and as i said a little effort at the outset will save you a lot in terms of time and cost further down the line Lindsay, thank you very much for your time today really appreciate it thanks john and Lindsay, for today's episode be sure to check out the show notes for a summary of the discussion and for all other information Please get in touch with us via Twitter or Facebook to give us your feedback on today's podcast, all linked below. Look forward to catching up with you all on our next episode. Thanks for listening.